Has God ever said no to a ministry opportunity that you wanted to take part in? You might think that that would be a strange question to ask because if we have a desire for ministry, wouldn't God just naturally want us to do it? But in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we see Paul, an apostle, the one God had sent to go to the Gentiles, trying to go to some Gentiles in a particular region, and God tells him no, not once, but twice. And so I think it raises this question for us. Does God tell us no when it comes to certain ministry opportunities? And even beyond that, what should we conclude if that takes place? And so let's look at the passage together. It's not a real long passage, and uh, certainly there's different ways to break up chapter 16. A lot of commentaries would group the conversion of Lydia with the other uh, uh, encounters that we have in the rest of the, of the book of the chapter here. But I think that it's important to go down through verse 15 because I think we see God's sovereignty in directing Paul to this specific place. So we'll start in verse 6, and when it talks about the Phrygian and Galatian region, these would be areas in the northern part of what is now called Turkey. Now there's some dispute about whether Paul was having sort of a northward arc or having more of a southward arc through modern-day Turkey on his way to eventually arriving at Macedonia. And there's a variety of reasons that people give for holding to one or the other, I don't think that that's really the main thing that we should focus on from this passage. The specific geography is not the most important point. The most important point is this. Look at verse 6. It says, Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And we look at this, and this just strikes us as, as odd, because at the beginning of Acts, the Holy Spirit is supposed to come upon those who are the witness of Christ, they were supposed to take the gospel in sort of a, a ripple effect out from Jerusalem to the known world. Why in the world would the Holy Spirit say, don't go speak the gospel in this particular place? The first thing I think we see from this passage is that Paul and his companions did not give up. Because we might say, the Spirit said we're not supposed to preach the gospel in this place, Maybe that means we're just not supposed to preach the gospel at all. We're going to give up and go home. We'll look at the next verse. After they came to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And so Paul and his companions, Timothy and so on, did not immediately stop and go home and, and turn around and leave the work that God had called them to do. They were trying to go to the next place. When God said not to go into Asia... They said, well, we're going to go to the next region. But it says the Spirit of Jesus prevented them there also. Now, some people have taken this to mean Jesus himself, but in consistency with the rest of the book of Acts, probably the Spirit of Jesus would be a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so twice now, the Holy Spirit has said to them, don't take the gospel to this specific place. So they passed further along. They came down to Troas, which is over toward the western edge of Turkey, and then Paul has this vision. And this vision gives him direction on where it is that he's supposed to go. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And he listens to the vision, concluding God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
Notice verse 10. It doesn't just say Paul. It's not talking in the third person anymore. It says we. And the reason that it says we is it seems that Luke had joined them by this point and was going to accompany them on this particular part of the mission to what was going to now be expanding beyond the Middle East and Turkey, the, that region there, but even into the eastern part of Europe. And so we'll get to the, the next part of the passage in just a moment, but I think I it would be helpful for us to pause and to think about this question specifically when it comes to the context of ministry, but then also more broadly when it comes to decisions that we're making generally in life. When God says no, I think that one of the things that is typical to happen when God says no to a particular opportunity that we are convinced that we should pursue is that we often read too much into it. First of all, I think we would have to ask ourselves the question of how do we know when God has said yes or no to something? Paul and his companions had a specific vision from the Holy Spirit. I would argue that we do not have such visions today as a source of guidance on what it is that we're supposed to do. So how then do we know what it is that we're supposed to do? Some people will say, well, we should put out a fleece. That's what Gideon did. But Gideon is certainly not an example of faith, at least in that specific action. And often circumstances can be easily misinterpreted. Now, circumstances do play a part in our decisions, in our understanding of God's will. If, uh, for example, you want to go to a particular place, and let's say it costs $50,000 to go to that specific place, and you don't have $50,000, that circumstance is preventing you, at least in the short term, from following out that specific desire. But where do we start? Where do we start with making decisions? We have to start with God's words. And the progression should be something like this. What are the clear commands of Scripture? There are clear commands of Scripture, things like flee immorality, things like love the, brothers, con the brethren continually, things like be faithfully and regularly gathered with the church assembly. We start in discovering God's will by following the clear commands of Scripture. Secondly, we discover God's will further as we look at biblical principles. So when it comes to a specific decision, uh, we have to say what passages of Scripture, what principles of Scripture would be helpful in guiding me in this specific decision. Um, you know, there's a variety of examples that we could use, but perhaps we could take the example of maybe you want to pursue a specific job. And so there are different principles that would come into play when it comes to a specific job. And it says in one passage that those who do not provide for their families are not even living up to the standards set by unbelievers. And so if you say, I want to pursue this job, but this job is not going to meet my family's needs, then that principle, I think, would say you need to probably reconsider whether that's the right job for you. Or... And this one is a little bit more complicated because I certainly don't think that you have to be present in every service of the church. But if you have a particular job that makes it impossible for you to ever participate in church, 
then that is going to be a real challenge. And I realize there are people who are, who are doing different things and uh, you know, police officers and doctors and those sorts of things who are doing work that will call them to do it in an instant. Sometimes it's plumbers and electricians and, and people who are fixing different things and, and sometimes things come up and you just have to work uh, when, the, when the work comes up. I knew a guy who had a, a snowplow business and the weekends when there was heavy snow, sometimes he wasn't in church because he was either worn out for three days of plowing or he just, uh, he just was still out working all during that time. So there's a difference, though, I think, in attitude between someone who says, my goal is to avoid church as much as possible versus my goal is to support my family, and sometimes there's conflicts between that responsibility and my responsibility to be in church. So what's the impact going to be on my spiritual life? Can I meet my family's needs? Uh, connected with impact on my, on my family's life, is there a church that we can participate in? You know, sometimes people will dive in, they say, I'm going to take a job opportunity that's you know, the other side of the country, but they don't even look first and see if there's even a church that they could participate in. That would be a, a foolish or an, un, or an unwise move. Uh, perhaps someone could think about whether there are ministry opportunities connected with that job. And again, you start out with the biblical principles that have to do with right and wrong. You have to provide for your family. You have to be involved in church. And you move down the line to things that are more wisdom issues. Is this something that I really enjoy? Sometimes you would, you would love to do a particular job that you, that you want to do, and sometimes you just have to do a job that you have to do because it, it fulfills those other requirements. And then you move down to issues of preference. Are these people I'd like to work with and all of those sorts of things? My point is simply to say, how do we make decisions? We make decisions beginning with clear commands of Scripture. We live those things out on a daily basis. Then we look at biblical principles that would touch on the specific situation we're trying to make a decision about. And then we start thinking about other factors, like what do godly people that I know think about this specific situation? Get advice from those people. What are my specific circumstances in terms of skills, in terms of finances, in terms of a variety of other factors? And so we don't have the Holy Spirit's specific verbal direction about our next steps. But we do have parameters in Scripture that give us wisdom about how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. So then coming back to the question of circumstances, God told Paul and his companions no to going to a specific place through a vision. How do we figure out that God tells us no about something that we want to do, specifically in terms of a ministry opportunity, but even more broadly in terms of anything else in life? I think the answer is that's when circumstances begin to play a part because they limit our choices. If someone has a desire to, for example, to be a missionary to another place and they don't know the language, that's an obstacle that has to be overcome. If they don't have the finances to go to that other place, that's an obstacle that has to be overcome. If even perhaps before those two, they say, I have this desire, but the church says, we don't think you're ready, that's a circumstance that is going to limit and, and prevent their choices. And that, I think, is where we see parallels between our present-day situations and what Paul experienced. 
And so if you found yourself in that situation, I really want to be a missionary, and my church says you're not ready, or I've tried to raise money to be a missionary, and I can't raise enough, what then do you do? Some people will say, well, it was just a little bit of, a, of an empty dream. I'm going to give it up and be done. I, I forget ministry. I'm done. Now, hopefully, that wouldn't be the immediate response, but it's easy to get discouraged when there are obstacles in the way of doing something that we believe God wants us to do. So, what would a proper response be? We look at the passage. They were trying to go to the next place. So, somebody says, I want to be a missionary in Africa, and that opportunity is not available. So, they say, you know what? I'm convinced God wants me to be a missionary Direct me, help me, uh, show me where you want me to go. And through prayer and wise counsel and pursuing opportunities, perhaps they find that there is an available opportunity for them to go to Europe or to Asia or to South America or something like that. In those cases, rather than giving up on ministry, we take that obstacle and use it as an opportunity to say, God, it doesn't seem like you want me to do this, so maybe there's something else that you want me to do. And the complicated thing about all of this is that there's a degree to which our specific choices affect these circumstances. Um, and there's also an encouraging degree to which God is working behind the scenes in ways that we don't necessarily see up front, but looking back, we can see. Uh, I mean, just as an example personally, I had a desire to be more involved in church ministry, and that opportunity did not open up right after I was out of seminary because there were two competing goals. We wanted to have a family, and we wanted to serve in ministry, and the church opportunities that I was aware of would have made the other goal impossible because of complications with, with insurance and providing for our family and all of those sorts of things. And I just simply couldn't find a job that would be enough to support church ministry and my family at the same time. So we waited. And then we were involved at the church that we were at previously, and the uh, situation was that being a, a large church and many different people involved in ministry, there was an extent to which the opportunities that I had were, were limited. There wasn't any further expansion of ministry that I could have there. And then God in his sovereignty directed us here, for which we're very thankful. Now, I don't say that in any way to boast or to anything like that. I'm just saying, looking back on it, I can see how God prepared our family in different ways for a variety of things. But there would have been a possibility of giving up at any of those points along the way. Because that's what happens sometimes. Guys will say, I'm going to go to Bible college, I'm going to go to seminary, or I just think I want to be a pastor, and they try for a while to find an opportunity, and the opportunity does, doesn't happen, and then they say, you know what, I'm just going to be done. And, so, and, I, and there's nothing inherently wrong with saying, I've spent time getting biblical training, I think God wants me to be involved in the business world. That's one thing. But it's when people say, I've spent all this time and effort in trying to trying to understand the Bible better and, and be prepared for ministry, and then they don't do anything with it. That's sad. So in connection with your own life, 
when you see ministry opportunities, pursue them. And if you're not able to pursue them, don't stop pursuing ministry just because one specific opportunity is not available to you. Instead, continue to pursue God's work. We'll get more into why I think it was that God did not send them to the region of Asia and these other places as we come to the end of our passage. But let's continue here in verse 11 and following and see what God does allow them to do. All these cities that are listed off, which Jonathan did a great job uh, pronouncing. I probably should have given you a heads up. Not quite as bad as some of the Old Testament passages that we've had in past years, but a lot of unfamiliar words. Uh, essentially, all that's happening here is that uh, Paul and his companions are traveling from the northeastern corner of Turkey across the uh, passage of water there over into Macedonia and sort of curving down to where they're going to arrive at Philippi. And it's interesting, just as a historical aside, that Macedonia used to be the empire that ruled the world, right? Alexander the Great, well-known emperor and conqueror, controlled the whole world. And now Macedonia was merely a colony of the Roman Empire. So that's just a, an interesting aside for the, uh, the um, security and the safety of human achievement. That being said, Philippi was one of the, the main cities, the main city of that particular district, and they were in that place for some days. When it says in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside, uh, we have to ask the question of why did they go out to the riverside? Why did they expect there to be a place of prayer? Why did they speak to the women who had assembled there? There's a couple of different possibilities. One would be that for the sake of preserving peace with their Gentile neighbors, the Jews had established their specific place of worship in this location. It was an actual synagogue. What seems more likely was that the fact that Paul was addressing women who were gathered there and that it was by a river and no references made to a building or a synagogue, it could very well be that there just simply weren't enough Jews to have established a synagogue in that particular city. But the devout women who followed after God, who are connected with the Hebrew faith, were worshiping God there by the river. Why would it have been important to do it by the river? Because there's a lot connected with the Old Testament rituals that had to do with washings and all of these sorts of things, ceremonial cleansing. And it was just a, a common practice, it seems, in those days. So they are following their custom, following their pattern of preaching the gospel first to whatever assembly of Jews they found. And so that's where they begin, as they had in other places. We see in verse 14, we're introduced to a woman named Lydia. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. What's the significance of these descriptions of her? Well, first of all, we see her name. It's interesting that we do not see the name of the slave girl in the next few verses or of the jailer at the end of the chapter, but we are given this woman Lydia's name. Do we see her elsewhere in Scripture? It's not clear that we do. And yet we do see her as being the first person who trusts Christ in what is modern-day Europe. When it says that she's from the city of Thyatira, at first I read that and I said, well, what's the significance of that? Some people look at that and they say, well, 
That means that she had some kind of background as a slave, and this describes the place of origin and why she was brought there. I don't think that that's the reason that that specific phrase is there. If you look on a map, Thyatira is in that whole region that the Holy Spirit didn't let Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke go to. Why is that significant later on? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. They say, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. If you turn over to the book of Revelation, it's a few pages over, you will see there, and we're not going to read the verses, but I just want to highlight for you that there are messages to the church at Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. They're at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. You say, so what does that have to do with Lydia being from Thyatira? There's two possibilities. One is that Lydia and perhaps others who are from that same place that she became acquainted with, at some point returned to the region of Thyatira and were instrumental in helping to establish the church there. Or that some of these who had been scattered through the various waves of persecution from Jerusalem also went to that place, that region, that God prevented Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke from going to. What's my point in bringing that up? My point in bringing that up is this. God didn't let Paul start the church in Thyatira, but there was a church in Thyatira at least by the end of the New Testament. So what is that? What significance does that have for us? Not only should we not give up on ministry if God says no to us, we should also recognize that the ministry is bigger than any one of us. If God prevents me from going to Africa, God can send somebody else to Africa. If God prevents me from going to Colorado, God can someone, send someone else to go to Colorado. You know, just Now, does that mean that I should have any less burden for seeing the gospel go forth? No. But it does mean that instead of the burden being on any one person's shoulders, God sees all of the things that are happening in the world as a whole and is able to accomplish what it says at the beginning of Acts, which is that the gospel would spread throughout the known world, even if Paul's not the one that does it, even if Peter's not the one that does it. And notice how those people got to that region in 1 Peter 1. They were scattered most likely because of persecution. Does that mean that we should wait for persecution to scatter us before we go? No, but it means that God can use all of the circumstances of life to put us exactly where he wants us to be. And so, what do we see first from this passage? Pursue ministry and don't give up if God says no. Keep pursuing ministry. Have confidence that God can accomplish ministry, whether it's through you or me or someone else, but in reality, all of us working together. 
And then I think as we read down through these last two verses, we see that God can work in all sorts of people. How does it describe Lydia? It says that she is a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God. Why was it significant that she was a seller of purple fabrics? It doesn't have anything to do with what your favorite color is. It has to do with the fact that the dye that was used to make purple fabrics would have been rare and would have been expensive, and so it would have been a business that was, she would have been fairly well off is the bottom line. And that's interesting and significant in light of the fact of what Paul will say later in Corinthians, which is, God doesn't save many who are rich. But can he? Sure. God doesn't save many that are mighty. But can he? Yes. God doesn't save many who are wise. But can he? He can. God saves all sorts of people. We'll see more about that in verse 15. When it says that she's a worshiper of God, uh, if you think back to when this sort of phrase has come up before, you have uh, people who are Gentiles and have nothing to do with the Jewish faith, and then you have people who were God-fearers or worshipers of God who followed some of the practices connected with Judaism, and then you had those who were, were proselytes. They were converts to Judaism and followed all the rites and rituals to the extent that they could, not having been born Jews. And so Lydia is one of these in this middle category. For whatever reason, she has not fully embraced everything connected with Judaism, perhaps because of the lack of there being a synagogue there, perhaps for some other reason we don't know, but she does have an awareness that there is God, and that God is not the gods of Macedonia and Greece and Rome, but that there is one true God and she should follow him. But she's not yet converted. Why do I say that? It says she's listening to what Paul is saying in verse 14, and it says, And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This is important because it's easy for us to look at a verse like this and say, well, as long as someone knows that there's a God and believes that there's a God, they're right with God. But it's not enough just to know there's a God and believe there's a God. You have to have a personal relationship with that God. There has to be a turning away from sin and a turning to God. How do we know that that took place in her experience? Because it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, what does this look like? We could get into an extended debate about the exact order of all of the many things that God does in the, the instant, the moment of salvation. But broadly described, there has to be a turning away from sin and a turning to God. And that has to be enabled by a work of God. Why? Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans 3 says we're all going our own way, opposed to God, hating God as his enemies. And so there has to be something that turns us to God. And that's not something that happened long before any one of us was born. Some people take John 1 to say, well, everybody has the opportunity to believe because Jesus already made it possible for everybody to believe. And the only thing that stands between you and belief is your choice. But the reality is, we are blind and dead and hopeless until God in the moment does for us what he did for Lydia, which was to open our hearts and our minds to respond to that truth. Does that mean that someone who is not a Christian can't understand what the Bible says? There's a degree to which they can understand intellectually. There's a degree to which they can accept it as truth. But that acceptance or belief or assent at all those levels is not enough to save someone. Why do I say that? Because in James it says, 
you believe in God, you do well, so do the demons and tremble. They know better than some of us what God is like because they saw him and they rejected him. And so we must be very careful just to say, I have a uh, in my mind kind of acquaintance and knowledge and belief in God that never does anything to affect our lives. How do we know that it should affect our lives? Look at what it says in verse 15. When she and her household had been baptized. Why would they be baptized? Not to save themselves, but rather as a sign that God had done that work in their heart and life. Not as something that had a special grace or benefit that made her somehow more acceptable to God, but rather as a sign of being connected with God as one of his people. And why, how else do we see that her life was affected? It says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And so not only is she hearing the message, responding to the message, being baptized, but she is now behaving just like the Christians that we saw in the early chapters of Acts, where they opened their homes, gave up their wealth sacrificially to serve people who had various needs. So was she genuinely converted? I think the activities of her life would say yes. Is it possible for someone to show hospitality without being converted? Possibly. But what we see here is all of these things together giving testimony to the fact that she did know God and had been changed by God's work. And notice that she didn't leave this up to herself, to her own evaluation. She said, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Now, I recognize that Paul was an apostle, and so he had a unique role in the early history of the church. But there is a very real sense in which God has given the church today the responsibility to evaluate and to uh, affirm or deny the testimony of people who say that they're Christians. Why is that important? Because in our society today, people think that I can be over here, isolated from church, I don't have to be a part of the church, it's just a very like loose connection. But there is a very real sense in which the church today, like Paul the Apostle, had the authority and the responsibility to evaluate to the best of our knowledge, is this person really a Christian? Can I know that 100%? Can you know that 100%? No. How do we evaluate it? By what we see from people's lives. Is it possible for that outward evidence to be more visible at one point and less visible at another point? Is it possible for there to be increase and decrease to the degree in which we're following God? Yes. But is it possible for there to be no desire to follow God or no evidence of genuinely being connected to God? No. Because what is that state? It's being an unbeliever. And so if Lydia had not listened to the words, if she had not been baptized, if she had not been willing to show Christian hospitality to these who are ministering the gospel, what would the right conclusion have been? She doesn't know God. That was Peter's conclusion about Simon. Why did Simon want to be connected with Christianity? Because it would give him power and money and make a name for himself. What did Peter say? 
get your heart right with God or you're condemned. In huge contrast to that example from earlier in the book of Acts, we see here someone who genuinely has a transformed life. And so why is this significant? Here's someone who was, as far as we can tell from what we know of society of that day, well off. And how did she choose to use what God had sovereignly blessed her with? To serve God. Does that mean give up everything that you have and live exactly like everybody else if God blesses you with a great deal of money? No, but it does mean whatever you have, whether it be great or small, is not for you, it's for God. We are just stewards for a little while. So as we look through this passage, we see God saying no, not once, but twice. We see Paul and his companions persevering in ministry. We see the fact that God can accomplish ministry not only through us, but also through others who are faithfully serving God. And we see that that ministry can result in genuine transformation and conversion and a changed life. And that ought to bring us hope and rejoicing. So what does this have to do with us today? If God says no, do you keep obeying him? If God says no to you, do you trust that he can do what needs to be done even through someone else or some other group or in another way? And do we look to see God transforming lives? And do, are we willing to look for those transformed lives in the context of our local church, saying it's important for you to be connected to this church, it's important for us to be doing this evaluation of where we stand before God. Like we looked at conscience earlier today. Do we have a good conscience, a clear conscience? Are we properly related to God? Because if we're not, that has eternal consequences. God works, whether he says yes, whether he says no, God works to spread the gospel as he has planned and purposed to do. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we see many different things that at first seem puzzling, and then as we look at other passages of Scripture, perhaps they become a little bit more clear. Lord, help us to be faithful, not to look at our opportunities for ministry and to have a sense of discouragement if you change our plans not to have a sense of pride if you use someone else as well as us, not to have a sense of uh, questioning whether you're able to save any sort of person. Well, Lord, help us to continue to persevere in ministry, to persevere in ministry alongside others who are faithfully serving you, and to persevere in ministry so that the goal of ministry would be accomplished, which is that people's lives are changed and they are brought to real and visible faith in you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep these truths in mind even this week, and that you would bless this afternoon as we go from this place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.